today. Today. Today's a day I have been looking forward to for a while. We are beginning a new sermon series in the book of Acts. Now, six, more than six years ago, we began uh, taking the book of Acts section by section, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and this is now our sixth year that we've been working through the book of Acts. So the first year we did, I think, like Acts chapters 1 through 5, and then we did 5 through 8 or something like that. And we just kind of, little by little, we'll take a few months and we'll work through a portion of the book of Acts. And this is our sixth year to do a study in the book of Acts. And this year, we are in Acts chapters 18 through 20. So if you have your Bibles, I would encourage you to open it up and, and be in there today, but also through the week. Read Acts chapters 18 through 20 so you can kind of get a picture of where we are going to be studying over the next two months. My favorite way to dig into scripture is just take a little bit and dig in deep. In fact, I, we only have a few, ch- a few verses that we're looking at today, but I thought I could do like three sermon series, three, three sermons on this whole thing because there's just, there's just so much in these amazing stories. We had, so if you remember a few weeks ago, we were doing the series on Pentecost, and Pentecost was the story of the giving of the Holy Spirit to all believers, how it filled the believers, and how the church just broke out among people. So we've been, for the last three weeks, we've been digging into Acts 1 and and 2, these two chapters on Pentecost. We we did the same passage three weeks in a row about the giving of the Holy Spirit. So just to give you a little bit of a picture of what's been happening in the book of Acts since Acts chapter 2 up to where we're going to be today in Acts chapter 18, I just want to give you a brief overview of what's been happening. So you know from the story of the Gospels that Jesus died, resurrected, then he eventually ascended into heaven, and then he gave the Holy Spirit, right? That brings us to the book of Acts. So Acts chapters 2 through 18, this is what happens. The apostles and the disciples of Jesus, they do healings, just like Jesus healed people. They do preaching, just like Jesus did preaching. They cast out demons, just like Jesus casted out demons. They get arrested a few times, just like Jesus got arrested. They spend some time in prison. There's a strong reaction to what it is that they're doing. They, they, uh, They traveled through Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, There, uh, Stephen gets stoned. Stephen is one of the disciples. He becomes the first martyr of the Christian faith. And once Stephen, the disciple, is martyred because of his proclamation of Jesus, it's at that point that the, the believers in Jerusalem, the ones who had all received the Holy Spirit, they run for their lives. It's no longer safe to be a Christian in Jerusalem, and so they spread out. They go to all different places. And so, the, so one disciple goes south, one disciple goes this way, one disciple goes north, and, and they, begin, they go out and they start telling people all over the place about Jesus. So interestingly enough, it's this persecution that pushes them out of Jerusalem into other parts of the world around them. God uses this to get his message out in a, in a different way. In chapters 9 through 11... We, we read about an area of Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch. So, so we get into kind of this area. So down here is Israel. This is where it all started in Jerusalem and where Jesus ascended from. And in Jerusalem, they break out from there. And so then in, in this next section of Acts, they go to Cyprus and Antioch and, and kind of they go north into this area. And we, and we read about those stories of Peter and what he's doing there. It's there on the Mediterranean coast that Peter meets up with Cornelius, a Gentile, 
Corn and that's a whole big awesome story, but Cornelius is not a Jew. And so this is a whole big realization to the Jews that God has indeed come not only for Jews, but also for Gentiles too. That's a whole big thing. There's a lot of talk about it. There's a lot of stress and stuff in figuring out how to do this. What does it actually mean to be a multi-ethnic church? How do we work this out? And it is here that the church in Antioch is established. This is the first formalized uh, Gentile church in Antioch, the first multi-ethnic church, the first very large church, the first place where people are called Christians. And it's from here that international missionaries from Antioch are then sent out north and south and, and, and um, east, and they go all over the place bringing the gospel of Jesus. Then we get to Acts chapter 12, and it begins the story of Paul and his three missionary journeys. There are three different trips that Paul takes for the purpose of going around and telling people about Jesus. So he does one kind of in this area, and then he does one over in this area. And where we are today is we're coming up to his third missionary journey. As Paul is bringing the message of Jesus, he always goes into these predominantly Gentile areas. He finds where there is a little group of Jews. Often there's a small group of Jews where there's a synagogue, and he starts with the Jews, teaches at the synagogue, tries to get people to understand that Jesus is the Messiah, and it's from there that the church is built, and then Gentiles get to become included in that. There are lots of cultural conflicts. There are lots of problems of people trying to figure out, but how do we bring our cultures together to do church? How do we handle your culture and my culture? And, and the Jews are like, some of these things are like Jewish things that are really important to us. And Paul says, some of these things matter and some of them don't. And so let's figure out what, who Jesus is calling us to be and what does it mean to actually be the church of Jesus. So lots of cultural conflicts. I do want to just pause and say, if you want a religion that does not clash with culture, then Christianity is not for you. We have had a privilege of being in America, in, in North America at this time in history, where we've had a lot of freedom of religion. It's been a dominant mainstream religion, even if it's been a nominal one for many people. But we haven't had, a, we haven't had much persecution. But this time is coming when people who are true to God's word, people true to scripture, Christians who are faithful to following Jesus and living like him and engaging in a life of holiness, the time is increasingly coming where we will be experiencing more cultural clashes. If you want a religion that doesn't clash with culture, Christianity isn't for you. This time is here. So there's lots of this going on. There's lots of this. And so here we are today at the start of Paul's third missionary journey. He's doing another circuit. I mean, he's going to go around. He's going to visit some of the churches he's been there before. He's going to go around and talk to people, encourage the believers, encourage new believers to join in. So you can see on our map here, this is the whole area where things are starting. Do you remember when Jesus first commissions the disciples, and he, he tells, he gives all of us the Great Commission, and he says that they're going to go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and what? The far parts of the earth. And so that's what's happening here, Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and then they begin to spread. There are all stories through Acts about uh, going down into Egypt and coming all the way across here into, this is Turkey or Asia Minor, this is Greece, and into these islands around here. Lots is happening, lots is happening right here. 
So today, as we go get into Acts 18 through 20, these two chap 18, 19, and 20, these three chapters focus exclusively on Paul's time in a city called Ephesus. Ephesus is right here on the coast uh, in between modern-day Turkey and Greece. It was a very significant trade city. It is a very cosmopolitan place. People were coming from all over the world to Ephesus. It was a very wealthy, educated city. It was the epicenter of worship for most of the Greek and Roman gods. In fact, there was a massive temple of Artemis that we'll be talking about in a few weeks that was located there that was just a, a huge temple to Artemis. It drove the economy. It was a very religiously diverse area densely packed city. It was a very advanced city. Uh, the, the streets of the city at night were brightly lit with oil lamps. They had a sewer system, and uh, there was a very high standard of living that wasn't enjoyed everywhere else. And so Paul spends two years, he, today we're at the beginning of a time when he's going to be spending two years in Ephesus. We have the book of Ephesians that's written in the New Testament, and that comes a little bit later, and it's written to this church here in, in Ephesians. I had a really fun thing where just this past week, a friend of mine was posting on social media, and it turns out that she, she was just been touring in, uh, in Turkey, and specifically in Ephesus. And so just this week, she posted pictures of her time in Ephesus. So I asked for some permission to show you some of these archaeological ruins. So uh, this, this was her, this is ancient Ephesus. You can see that some of the ruins have been partially restored. And this is walking down the main street, you see where the crowd is going, walking down the main street of the city. This would have been by a marketplace area. It kind of gives you a feeling for what it looked like and going down some of, some of those hills and, and what that street might have looked like. Then, there's a picture of the amphitheater. This was a giant amphitheater. It was one of the largest in the ancient world. Guess how many people it was designed to hold? up to 50,000, up to 50,000 people. This is crazy. This is crazy. And we'll see, we'll come back to this in a couple weeks where we'll see that Paul wanted to actually address the people here in this amphitheater, but they were rioting and he was never able to make it happen because they're going to get killed. Uh, but anyway, this is that very amphitheater that the Apostle Paul wanted to be in, saw, and, and tried to preach at. The second, this, the next picture is a building called the Celsus Library. This was an ancient library. Isn't it amazing and beautiful? This was a, a very impressive library. It was the third largest library in the ancient world. This was a place where Jewish scholars translated the Hebrew Old Testament into the common Greek, where the Septuagint, if you Bible scholars out there, this is where this was, was translated. Uh, this is just amazing, this, this library. And these ruins were reassembled by the archaeologists as they, as they found, found the, the footings. And then the final picture for you is, can you guess what this is? Yes. Yes. And it's a rather advanced system. There, they had water that ran underneath the seats and water that ran in the trough in front of the seats. Uh, I don't pretend to know exactly how it all functioned, but uh, I do know that there was this sewer system. And my friend informed me that in front of it, there was this square pool. You can kind of see where the wood boards. There was this square pool, and they kept a pool of water there, and they kept bullfrogs there so that the bullfrogs would help to mask any unfortunate sounds that might happen. <laughs> I mean, this is 
pretty, pretty like, advanced, right? This is pretty amazing. There, there have been times in public bathrooms where perhaps you wish you might have had the same option. So this is the city of Ephesus. This is ancient Ephesus. It was a very happening place. It's a place of great culture, a place of, the, of many, coming, many people coming together. So today, here we are. Let's jump into our passage, Acts chapter 18. If you have your Bibles, we're in Acts 18, verse 18. The first few verses are introductory comments, and then we'll get to our main part today. Acts chapter 18, verse 18. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sencrie because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined, but as he left, he promised, I will come back if it's God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time in Antioch, Paul set out from there and traveled from place to place throughout the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. So Paul, earlier, earlier in this chapter, earlier in his travels, before where we are today, what we covered a few years ago, Paul meets up with a couple named Priscilla and Aquila, who we'll be talking about today, and they come to Ephesus. Then Paul leaves Priscilla and Aquila, this couple, he leaves them here to do this work of discipleship, and then Paul takes off and he goes and sails somewhere else, and then after a while he comes back. But today we have this, this, this situation where Priscilla and Aquila are doing the work in Ephesus, and that's what we're going to look at today. Acts chapter 18, verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was a learned man with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. So we actually know quite a bit about Apollos just from this short bit. Uh, let, let's dig into that. Let's look at verse 24 again. It says, a Jew named Apollos, who was a native of where? And where's Alexandria. Egypt. Yep. So we have this man. He's Egyptian. He's, he's, he's Egyptian. And he comes, he finds himself in Ephesus. Now we know from church history that right at this time, just a few years before, the Alexandrian Jews, the Jews in Egypt, in this part of Alexandria, had been significantly persecuted. Many were being killed. And so Jews were fleeing. They were, they were, ref, they were uh, religiously persecuted and they were refugees for that. And so we have this man, Apollos, from Egypt, comes to Ephesus. Okay, and then the scripture continues. He was a what man? A learned man. What does that mean? Educated, knowledgeable. He had studied. He had had formal education. And he had a thorough knowledge of the scriptures. Verse 25 says, he had been what? He had been instructed. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and he spoke with what? Great fervor, and he taught about Jesus accurately. He knew a lot. He was a brilliant communicator. He was passionate. He had fervor and energy, and he was teaching about Jesus. He knew about Jesus, 
he knew accurate information about Jesus, but his, the knowledge he had of Jesus was limited. It said he knew only the baptism of John. Now hang on to this idea, because next Sunday, Pastor Kevin is going to be preaching, and he is going to be talking about another group of people that also only knew about the baptism of John and how this plays out in their life. So there, around, out there, there was knowledge about Jesus. There was knowledge about repentance. That's what John the Baptist had called people to repentance. But there wasn't this full understanding of the whole story of, oh, Jesus also died on a cross as a sacrifice for our sins. He was buried then he resurrected and came to life again, and then he ascended into heaven, and then the Holy Spirit came. They didn't know that part of the story. They hadn't gotten to that part. They didn't know there was more. Apollos was just like, Jesus was pretty incredible. He was, he was born of the Son of God, and born of a virgin. He was the Son of God. Uh, he healed. He preached. He announced the kingdom of God, and you need to repent of your sins. He just didn't have the whole rest of it. And so his understanding was incomplete, I would suggest to you that knowing that Jesus resurrected, that he conquered the power of sin and death and came to life again is one of the most crucial things we can know about Jesus. And in fact, when Jesus came announcing the kingdom of God, he kept saying over and over again, the kingdom of God is near, and he said, do two things, repent and believe. Repent and and believe. This is how you enter the kingdom. He says, repent and believe. So Apollos here is announcing, repent, 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 but he didn't have the whole belief part because he didn't know the rest of the story yet. Just a little side note, I think some of us sometimes fit into that, where maybe we, we believe, but we don't repent. Or maybe we, we repent of our sins, but we, we lack belief that Jesus will do in us what he says he will repent and believe. And so his teaching was accurate, but not completely adequate. He lacked some key doctrine. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord. He spoke with great fervor and taught about Jesus accurately, though he knew only the baptism of John. Verse 26. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue boldly. I like this guy. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they invited him to their home and explained to him the way of God more adequately. So they hear him and they say, we got to talk to this guy. So we've got Priscilla and Aquila. Like Apollos, they too were a Christian refugee uh, couple. They were, they were refugees. They had been from Italy. And they had fled persecution in Italy. They met up with Paul. I, I think it was in Corinth that it said. And then it, from there, they traveled with Paul to Ephesus. And so now they're this couple, this amazing couple, doing ministry with the Apostle Paul, supporting him, engaging in the ministry, having conversations with people about Jesus. They were tent makers by trade. That was their work. And they'd been discipled by Paul and traveled with him. And so Priscilla and Aquila, they go to the synagogue. They listen. And they think, this guy's good. This guy's good. He's really good. This Apollos guy, he's, he's teaching about Jesus, and he's, he's doing it well. But, but did he notice something? I, I think he's maybe missing some info. 
I don't think he's got it all down. He's, he's missing something. I don't think he knows the whole story about Jesus yet. Maybe he hasn't heard the rest. We should talk to him. So I just kind of imagine what that looks like. But as, as they eventually they go to him and they, it says they invite him into their home. So they put themselves in the synagogue. They see an area of growth. And they decide to speak with him directly. The, the knowledge Apollos had of God was accurate, but not adequate. And Priscilla and Aquila explained to him the way of God more adequately. I love this picture of this couple. I wish we knew a little bit more about them than we even do. They're mentioned multiple times in the Bible. There are lots of times that the Apostle Paul mentions them in other books of the Bible and says, greet Priscilla and Aquila for, Aquila for me. And then he says, um, and, and then at one point it's referenced that they have a house church in their home. They, they're a very interesting couple. But they show up here. They show up for spiritual conversations. And that's what I want us to wrestle with today. Do we show up for spiritual conversations? What, what can we learn from Priscilla and Aquila? If we're looking at them as a model of people who call out disciples, of people who are spiritual influencers, what can we learn from them in this? Here's what we learned from Priscilla and Aquila's example of spiritual influencing. Number one, we've got to show up to spiritual conversations. You've got to show up. If you don't show up, and put yourself in the synagogue where people are talking about Jesus, if you don't put yourself in the middle of spiritual conversations when people are discussing these things, you're not going to be part of them. They show up. They show up. They put themselves in a position to engage in spiritual things. They didn't know what they were going to encounter when they went to the synagogue that day, but they showed up, they were present, and God used them. Are you a Christian? Have you been one for a while? If you've, if you've been one for a while, then the hope is that you are a mature Christian. Now, it's, it's possible that you've maybe been a Christian for a while, but you're not a mature Christian, and that's a different problem. That's something that, sh that you really should address and should look into that. We need to get mature. But we need to show up, church, for spiritual conversations. We need to help explain the way of God more adequately. We need to point people toward deeper connection with God. We have such an individual picture of salvation. We, we Americans, we think it's all about like you and God, and you and God work that out. That's between you and God. Well, if we love people, we're going to care about people connecting with God, and so it becomes our business too. And so we need to help point people to a deeper connection with the rescuer, with the healer, with the savior, with the comforter. And I want us to really explore today is it? Who is it? Who has God put in your life that you can be spiritually investing in? I believe that there are probably more people than what you think. Who, who has God put in your life that you're supposed to be spiritually investing in? How do you spiritually invest in your friendships? I mean, Maybe you're a Christian and your friend is a Christian too. Great. But do you actually talk about your faith? 
Do you actually have spiritual conversations? Do you talk about your wrestling with God? Do you talk about your encouragement from the Lord? How are, are you having conversations like that? Do you spiritually invest parents in your children? It doesn't really matter their age. Even adult children need investment. Are you having spiritual conversations with them? Even babies need spiritual investment. Who has God put in your life that you're spiritually investing in? How do you spiritually challenge and encourage spiritual vitality in your significant other? Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe it's a boyfriend or a girlfriend. Maybe it's, you know, that crush. I don't know. But that person, what does spiritual investment look like there? Adam and I would... We, we practice uh, mutuality in our spiritual leadership. We believe that God is the leader of our home and that he has, he has empowered us to lead our home. And so what that looks like, how we engage with each other, is we challenge each other spiritually. It's not just a one-way thing or one of us doesn't, the other one of, of us doesn't. If one of us is sinning, it's, the, it's our job as a married couple, call the other one out. If one of us is, is wavering in faith, the other one can help strengthen them. As, as a... As, with significant others, how are you challenging and investing spiritually in those people? And, and maybe, just maybe, the Holy Spirit's been putting someone on your mind lately. And maybe that's a person that you're supposed to be spiritually investing in. Maybe the Holy Spirit has had you think about them pretty regularly because the Holy Spirit's stirring something up in you, like, I've, I've, I've called you to this person in this season reach out, write that email, send that text, ask that question, initiate that conversation. Who do you need to show up for? I'd like you to take just a moment wherever you are and write down some notes for yourself. This is just for you. Write it down. Who do you think that the Lord might be challenging you to show up for? Write it down because you need to see it. I don't need to see it, but you need to actually go through the physical work of writing it down because it makes you commit, it makes you pay attention to Jesus more if you're actually responding. So do something. Blood a pen, blood a pencil. Who might you need to show up for? And maybe you don't know for sure if it's the Lord leading you, but maybe you're wondering. Write down a list of a few names. Now, we can only do it for so many people. I mean, like, you can't, like, spiritually invest in 100 people all at the same time. But maybe there's one or two that the Lord's really saying, this is, this is a connection that I want for you. Who do you need to show up for? So Priscilla and Aquila show up. They turn out for the spiritual talks. The second thing that we learn from Priscilla and Aquila's example is, number two, they initiate investment in someone else's spiritual growth. They initiate investment in somebody else's spiritual growth. Here's what did not happen. They did not say, hey, we're going to do a Bible study at our house. If anybody wants to come, you can come. Now, there's a place for that. But did you notice that Apollos isn't necessarily asking for help here? Apollos isn't necessarily saying, I've got questions. Can somebody help me? He's thinking he's kind of got it figured out. But kindly, graciously, Priscilla and Aquila initiate going to him and saying, hey, we see things in you. God's moving in you. There's more. Let's talk. I think that a lot of us American Christians, even those who've been Christians for a long time, are 
are reluctant to initiate these kinds of conversations with people. And I think this is a challenge for us. This is a challenge for us. Step out, show up, and initiate some spiritual conversations. What's the worst that could happen? They'll say no. Initiate some spiritual conversations. They initiate with him, hey, can we talk? And they, t- they take the initiative for spiritual influence. The third point, the third thing we learned from Priscilla and Aquila, is to invite others into your life and home for the purpose of spiritual instruction. Invite others into your life and home for the purpose of spiritual instruction. They go to Apollos and they say, come on over to our house. Come and have a meal. Come and stay for a while. Let's talk. Now some people have a gift of hospitality that looks like presenting a beautiful home and a beautiful meal. That's great. But I think that biblical hospitality is something slightly different. It's great if it includes those things. But sometimes hospitality simply means just come and be. Come and be with us. Come and be together. Come and do life with us. It's okay if the house is in a state. It's okay if the food isn't great. Let's just do life together. And that's what they do here. They, and, and this sort of inviting others into your life, oh, that's a little costly, isn't it? It takes your time. It takes your energy. Anytime we have people over, Adam's like, I don't want to have people over because we've got this dog we have to deal with. And he's such a pain to have when people come over. But all these things we have to like get, get through. You know, it's a, it's a cost. It's an investment. It's personal. It takes time. Church, spiritual investment in people takes time. You cannot get away from it. None of us want to give more time to other things. All of us want more time to ourselves. But the reality is, if you want to grow in Jesus, you have to invest the time. If you want to be a spiritual influencer, it will cost you time. You need to make a decision about what time of yours is available to the Lord to use. Invite others into your life and home for the purpose of spiritual instruction. Who are, you can't do this with everybody, but who are one or two or three people that the Lord is challenging you to reach out to. Point number four. We also learn from Priscilla and Aquila to explain spiritual things more adequately. How do you do this? What do you have to know in order to do it? You have to know the Bible. How, are, how do you get to know the Bible? What do you have to do? Read it. Good, we're learning. We're doing this week after week. Yes, yes. In order to know the mind and the heart of God, you have to read his word. In order to know his word, you have to create space and time to get it in your life and let it wash over you. Explain spiritual things more adequately. They are, they're explaining doctrine to Apollos. And I, I would just say that only mature Christians really should be doing this. We don't want immature Christians explaining doctrine because it needs to be right. But be willing, mature Christians grounded in Scripture, be willing to correct and to address inaccurate or inadequate understanding. They can recognize Apollos' incompleteness because they themselves have been discipled by Paul. Point number five. Point number four leads to point number five. If you're explaining these sorts of things, A lot of times this happens in point number five. If you're going to be a spiritual influencer, engage in the conflicts that spiritual influence stirs up. 
we have some examples in Scripture of people being confronted by spiritual truth or by a revelation of Jesus, and it is beautiful and joyful and everything's great. We also have lots of examples in Scripture of people receive spiritual influence and it stirs up conflict and difficulty and people being called out of old ways of life, people being challenged in old beliefs that are not scriptural, people being called out of cultural practices that are culture and aren't really kingdom. And so spiritual influencers need to be prepared for the conflict that will often ensue. There needs to be a vigorous debate. One of the things I like about Priscilla and Aquila is that they're, they're bold. Like, they go to Apollos and they say, let's talk. Let's talk. You're not asking for help, but we want to give it. They're bold, but they're also relational. Let's eat. Let's do the home thing. I think a lot of us do one or the other. We're relational, and then we're too soft about things. We're not bold enough. Or we're bold and in people's face, but we're not nice enough. <laughs> and Priscilla and Aquila show us this boldness that is also relational. Uh, let's see how conflict plays out just in the last uh, couple verses here and, and what happens. So they, they, they speak to Apollos and they teach him the way of the Lord more adequately. In Acts chapter 18, verse 27, uh, then it says what happens next. When Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, the brothers and sisters encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted his Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. So he's a, he's a debater. He, he vigorously refuted the opponents publicly. He's defending the faith. He's explaining things. The religious leaders are saying, well, what about this? Well, what about that? And he's like, well, this is how it is, and this is what the scripture says, and this is the fulfillment of prophecy, and this is how Jesus lines up, and this is the message of Jesus. And now that he has been discipled more adequately in the doctrines and in the understanding of who Jesus is and what he does, he is equipped and able to vigorously refute the opponents in public debate. He, because Priscilla and Aquila were willing to have the slightly uncomfortable conflict of calling him out to greater discipleship, look what he is now doing. Look at this fruit. He is now engaged in another kind of conflict, and calling in spiritual conflicts, and calling people into understanding and into faithfulness of God. This is amazing fruit. Aren't we so glad that Priscilla and Aquila had the courage to go after him and have the challenging conversation, spend the time, take initiative to get into his life. Aren't we so glad that they did that so then he could reach the thousands that he did? We don't know what the fruit of our spiritual influence will be. That's not even our problem. God's problem is the fruit. Our problem is the faithfulness. And as Christians, we have been called to make disciples of people. We have been called to be spiritual influencers. Let's show up to the conversations. Let's initiate some things. Quit waiting around passively. Let's initiate some things. Invite others into your home. And maybe that feels a little overwhelming, but maybe take the spirit of this. Invite people into your life a little bit. 
explain spiritual things more adequately. Maybe you can't be perfect, but do your best. And have the courage and the boldness to engage in conflict. Often that's going to mean maybe we're going to mess up or not going to do it perfectly. Be as faithful, as obedient, and as holy as the Holy Spirit helps you to be. And leave those results to Jesus. My encouragement to you today, church, is to really explore what spiritual influence is God calling me to. I heard a really cool testimony uh, just yesterday about somebody who, a young adult, who was like, yeah, I uh, wasn't really raised in the church, but I, I met Jesus, and then I influenced my family, and then now I've got this other friend. And we had this testimony that Ben Crocker shared just a little bit ago about his friend was this spiritual influencer in his life who listened, who cared, who ministered to him in a very, very pivotal time in his life. We don't know what the fruit will be, but we do know our calling. We do know what Jesus has challenged us to do. I'm not asking you to do huge stuff. I'm asking you to do faithful stuff. I'm asking you to do the one thing that the Lord's put on your heart. And I want to invite you to, again, take out a, a scrap of paper. Take out a communication card that's by your seat and a pencil. I, wa I want you to take some notes. I want you to write a couple things down here as we wrap up today. Who might the Holy Spirit be putting on your heart to influence in some way? It, it might be a non-believer. It might be a believer like Apollos. who might the Lord be bringing to mind for you today? It's okay if you're not sure if it's just your thoughts or the Holy Spirit's thoughts. Just, just write it down. He has a way of making those things clear as we seek him. And my next question is, what action step is the Lord inviting you into? What's that next step? Is it a text? Is it carving out time for something? What is that next step? There will be other steps. We don't have to figure all those out. Just what's the next step? And then my third question is, what resistance do you have to this? What right now is causing you to put on the brakes and say, ah, I don't know. What's keeping you from, from being a spiritual influencer in this situation? Put a name to it. What fear is it? What anger is it? What frustration is it? What confusion is it? What is it? What is that thing that would keep you? And Lord God, we come before you today holding these names, holding these reasons, holding these next steps before you. And Jesus, you so graciously and kindly invite us into your work. You've called us to do this sort of thing. And sometimes it just feels hard and awkward or uncomfortable, so we, we just avoid it or we, we save it for the people who are like career Christians. But God, you've called us, and your Holy Spirit has given us the power.
You've commissioned us. You've given us everything we need for life and godliness. That's what your scripture says. And so, Jesus, we hold these things before you, and we say, we, w- we want to be faithful. We want to be faithful. We want to be obedient. We want to be bold. Give us courage, God. Make us bold for you. Give us graciousness. Give us wisdom. Give us discernment. Help us to know not only accurate information about you, but adequately know what we need to know. And with your heads bowed today, if you would say, I, I really think that God is specifically challenging me to be a spiritual influencer in somebody's life, if that's you, would you just lift your hand? I, yeah, I think, I, think God's, I think God's stirring me up for this in some way, calling me to something a little deeper, giving me a step I need to take. Yeah, yeah. And Lord Jesus, for each of these people who have raised their hands, I pray for your Holy Spirit to give them everything they need. I pray that you will stir up in them a sense of unsettledness and uh, discontent until they follow through. And I pray that you, in your kindness, will lead them to everything they need to do next. Jesus, we don't control the outcome, but we do seek to be faithful. We are your disciples, calling out disciples, making other disciples. Thank you for the gift of being used, God. I don't know why you use people like us. The Priscilla's and the Aquila's and the Apollo's. You, you use people like us. It's what you've delighted to do. You've given us your church. You've given us your Holy Spirit. You've given us yourself. And so we say thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.